So tonight, um, I was reflecting today on what might be useful to speak about after so many rich and wonderful teachings. Um, Sultram introducing two practices that represent one of the absolute nature of reality and the second, working with the very relative nature of our feelings, thoughts, mind states, emotions, how they, how they can be so difficult for us. And so we find ourselves in practice having uh, a foot in each world, learning through our practice that how to navigate the relative reality that we all live in every day, and also how to benefit and open ourselves to touching the ground of being, to opening ourselves to the absolute nature of reality. So I thought I'd begin with a little story about um, my own experience of working with this practice of Prajnaparamita. She was introduced to Julie and Deborah and I several years ago. We received the transmission to begin the practice, just like you all have. And so about a year and a half or so ago, I did a month-long retreat in at a, a meditation center where there was silence, and I, I did this practice for a month, and I did it fairly intensively, doing at least three sessions of Prajnaparamita a day. And after that, I uh, left the retreat center, and I went directly to the Boston airport, <laughs> where I was to get my flight home to Tucson, Arizona, where I spent part of the year. And I got to the airport, and what's interesting when we've been on retreat is we, when we're so immersed in the retreat, it seems quite ordinary. We don't realize <laughs> where we've been until we leave. So you all are anticipating. So I arrived at the airport only to be told that my flight had been canceled. And the airline was working on <clears throat> getting me to Tucson in a very circuitous manner, going, uh, 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 doing a little tour of the country before. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, my flight was going to be leaving pretty soon, and I had to get myself to another terminal, which required taking two buses. And by the way, they had found me a seat on the first flight, which uh, was in the last row, the last seat of the plane. All of this went into my mind without a, a moment of reactivity. That was what was so striking. It was like I could find no problem in any of this, which was very much unlike my usual MO, especially at airports. I, it just seemed like, wow, this is amazing. So off I went. And it was truly an easy and spacious and even playful experience to uh, 
just know that I was somehow being well taken care of, <laughs> extremely taken care of, without any effort on my part, and without any sense that, uh, you know, there was a problem to it. That was my first hint that this Prajnaparamita practice had indeed erased some of my more stubborn habits. <laughs> now, I can't claim that they are gone forever, but I did have a, a delightful taste of living what it is like to live out of another ground of being than my usual one. As we practice turning ourselves towards the ground of being, surrendering ourselves, you could say, we, it is like we are truly learning how to live out of another place entirely that is not in reference to what I like, what I don't like, what I demand, what I need, what I hate, what I resist. It, none of those are relevant in this other way of being. So you have had a taste or a glimpse or perhaps more than that of this nature of mind. And you've been introduced not only to the nature of mind, but to a practice, a sadhana, this wonderful little yellow book, which will help you stabilize. This word stabilize becomes important when we're practicing the nature of mind, because it's not enough just to have a glimpse. It's not enough just to have a taste. As Sultram so skillfully pointed out, our habits of mind, of creating the, you know, the sense of a problem, creating the sense of, of something that we need to work on, you know, the split between the ground and the appearance, that is a deeply ingrained habit, a deeply ingrained way of being that is not going to easily surrender. And so the practice then becomes one of returning over and over and over again, testing in our own experience. Can this be trusted? Can we begin to sense the gift of what this practice offers us? And that takes practice. The Buddha talked about the habit of grasping the habit of grasping, and how deeply entrenched it is in our conditioning as humans out of perhaps survival. To establish a new habit of trusting that it is okay to let go, that we don't need to grasp, we don't need to hold in all the old familiar ways, that takes practice. It doesn't happen without practice. And part of practice is exposing ourselves to hearing descriptions of the ground of being, 
or the nature of mind. And there's some beautiful literature that describes the qualities and the, and the experiences that uh, we are apt to have when we open to the nature of mind. Here is one description of the ground of being uh, by a contemporary spiritual teacher. The ground of being is empty of everything. It is an objectless, spaceless, timeless, non-conceptual void. But everything that exists has come from this place or this no place, including you and me. This empty ground that we all emerge from is the womb of the entire universe. When something came from nothing 14 billion years ago, the nothing didn't disappear. That unborn, unmanifest dimension is the ever-present ground out of which everything is constantly arising. The experience of meditation enables you to know this empty ground within your own self. Even in the midst of the chaotic movement of thought and feeling, you can discover a current of stillness that is the echo of the ground of being. And there is a great mystery in that current, a miraculous, enlightening depth that answers all questions and relieves all doubts. So as a practitioner, we learn to work with our emotions, our moods, our difficult mind states. And we also learn that the strategies that we use to function in our competitive, individualistic world, the strategies of the ego of controlling and fixating and manipulating and resisting, all the things the ego specializes, specializes in, these are of no use when it comes to opening ourselves to the ground of being, are they? You know, when you're, you're, you're turning to open, open to the nature of mind and, and you suddenly feel this, this tightening, this fixating, this wanting to get it, wanting to grasp it, wanting to... You know, it's a little bit like going like this, you know, like trying to grasp. Like if I said to you, grasp the space in the room, you know, and we're all kind of going like this. You can see how crazy that is, but it's our habit. It is our habit. So we do this in internal, you know, we're like this. So what, what do we need to do? Relax. Come back. Come back. Come back. And so in the, in the mindfulness practices in the Vipassana tradition, there are many, many ways that we learn about letting go, about releasing our grasping, releasing our fixations, our obsessions, 
learning to work with the unfolding of our experience no matter where it takes us. No matter where it takes us, we are asked to meet our experience, to enlarge our capacity to meet what is difficult. And at the same time, know, know that we can rest in spacious awareness. One of the senior monks in this tradition, Ajahn Sumedho, we always have a perspective once we know the space of awareness, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is what is meant by the practice of letting go. Having a large enough capacity that everything can appear and disappear, be held and released. The work with the demons reminds me of um, our teacher, our teacher's teacher, Jack Cornfield's teacher, Achan Cha. He seems to be coming up kind of regularly in this retreat. It's, we didn't plan this, but I noticed Deborah has mentioned him several times, and here I'm wanting to tell you about something he said, which is that um, somebody once asked him, the great Thai meditation master, they said, how did you become so wise? Did you study the sutras or read some special texts? He replied that it was due to the intensity of his afflictive emotions that he had become wise. We can't skip that part. It doesn't do any good just to read sutras. If you're still dealing with negativity and afflictive emotions. So, Today, in reflecting on what might be useful to uh, talk about in terms of bridging the relative and absolute parts of our practice, what came to mind to me are the teachings on what are called the three characteristics. Some of you undoubtedly know this teaching, and some of you perhaps have not heard it. It is an essential piece of Dharma, and like all pieces of Dharma, it works by repetition. I used to think, as a teacher, I was sort of naive, like all you had to do was say something once, and everybody would completely understand, and you'd never have to say it again. (laughs) Well, I didn't realize that's not a good way to teach, nor is it realistic. And for myself, as a Dharma student, How many times have I heard the teachings on impermanence? And every time it's like, oh my gosh, yes. It's like fresh. That's how the Dharma works. We hear it, the same teachings over and over. But every time we hear them, they seem to be new. Maybe not every time, but a lot of times. 
we are in a different place. We're seeing differently. We're hearing differently. And so there's a freshness in this, in the way that we repeat things. So contemplating the three characteristics is a significant part of Vipassana practice. And a, it's, it's sort of the place and practice where you move from doing practice for stress reduction to doing practice for understanding the nature of reality. It's a significant shift. And it seems to me that we cannot go from being an ego self to being the great mother Prajnaparamita without a deep understanding of these three characteristics. What are they? The first is anicca, impermanence. The second is dukkha, the suffering that occurs when we hold on. The third is anatta, the emptiness of self. They are called the three characteristics or three marks because it is said that every moment of our human experience is characterized or marked by these three things. Every, every experience of mind, of body, every experience in the world, every experience on retreat is marked by these three. Every experience is impermanent. Every experience can be a source of suffering if we try to make it different or hold on, to, hold on in some way. Every experience is marked by this emptiness of self. So let me speak a little bit about each one. The first, anicca, impermanence. I love this quote by Rilke. The knowledge of impermanence that haunts our days is their very fragrance. Impermanence is everywhere. This moment is passing even as we sit here. In our lives, a meeting with a beloved friend the taste of something sweet, the last rose of summer, the child leaving home. All these experiences are fleeting, changing, in some sense ungraspable. We can't hold on, no matter how we may try. On retreat, we have the opportunity to notice as we sit, the changing flow of our inner experience, how sensations, thoughts, emotions, obsessions, joys, sorrows, stories we tell ourselves. How many of these have you experienced today? And where are they now? The moment of bliss 
the obsession, the judgment you believed earlier today about yourself or somebody else, where are they now? They arose and they passed. Bhikkhu Nanamoli summed it up. Whatever is, will be was. That really says it, doesn't it? This applies to every, everything, everything, from this building to our bodies, to that which you most treasure in this world, also to that which you most have difficulty in this world. Whatever is, will be was. Nothing stands still. Everything is in a state of constant change of morphing from one state into the next. Now, this is good news. When you're suffering, this is good news. When you're having a wonderful time that you'd love to just hold on to, this is not such good news. Sharon Salzberg. Maybe I forgot her page. Well, she said this really wonderful thing, (laughs) which I don't have with me, but it was about how even when things are difficult, we can be sure that because they are changing, there are many opportunities that we're not even aware of that could be occurring any moment. So it behooves us to pay attention because of the fact of change. Everything is alive with a kind of prospect that we miss if we see them as solid. The Buddha described the world, thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. I notice as I get older how that seems so true, especially looking back at life. Where did it all go? It was the Buddha's observation that when we try to hold on and make what is impermanent in its very nature, when we try to make that permanent and endure, we suffer, we feel disappointed holding on, insisting that reality conform to what I want. This is suffering. You may have heard this story before. An atheist fell off a cliff. As she tumbled downward, she caught hold of a small tree. There she hung with rocks a thousand feet below, knowing she wasn't able to hold on much longer. Then an idea came to her. God, she shouted with all her might. Silence. No one responded. Oh, God, she shouted again. If you exist, save me. Save me, and I promise I shall believe in you and teach others to believe. Silence again. Then, suddenly, a mighty voice boomed across the canyon. 
That's what they all say when they're in trouble. <laughs> no, God, no, she shouted out, more hopeful now. I'm not like the others. I've already begun to believe. Having heard your voice, now all you have to do is save me, and I shall proclaim your name to the ends of the earth. Very well, said the voice. I shall save you. Let go of the branch. <laughs> Is there anyone else up there I could speak to, said the woman. <laughs> we don't want to let go. Well, that's a little bit about impermanence. We could give weeks of teachings on impermanence. Every experience we have is also marked by anatta, emptiness. What does this mean? Empty. We associate that word to uh, something negative, something that is perhaps meaningless. And it can feel that way sometimes. Life can feel empty, meaningless. But that's not what the Buddha was indicating, really. Emptiness in this context means empty of a locatable self that is directing or controlling your experience. And so there are lots and lots of teachings in the Buddhist tradition on this emptiness of self. There are practices that encourage you to analyze and look for a locatable self. So I'll ask you, where is it? Well, the most obvious answer, if somebody says, show me yourself, is to say, well, you're looking at it. This is it. We say the body, this is me. How dumb, of course, it's me. But then we can ask, did you order it up at birth according to your preferences? Do you own your body? Did you choose its size, its, its color, its features? Did you choose to be a woman, a girl? Are you in charge of your body? Can you tell your body, get well, don't get sick? Do you own your body? And what will become of it? Can you control what happens to it? What's one of the wonderful things in science is how much they are learning about this thing called the body. The body has a life of its own, which is quite independent of anything we might think about it. For example, for example our bodies the average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. 
The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. So in other words, at any given moment, parts of the body are appearing and disappearing without your permission. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same one as you had yesterday. Even the body is subject to complete impermanence. So then we think, okay, well, all right, I'm not my body. I I see your point, you know, like it's kind of elusive that I should say this is me. So maybe it's in the mind or in the brain. I mean, this all feels so real, doesn't it? The sense of me, mine, doesn't that feel real, tangible? Like, of course, I'm here. So the neuroscientists have been looking in the brain. You know, they're looking in the brain for everything now. That's sort of the latest trend, to look in the brain and find out how it works. It's wonderful. But when they went to look for a self, they looked for a particular location or an activity or some kind of controlling mechanism. They couldn't find one. Time magazine announced several years ago, in reporting on this research, announced that despite the scientist's best efforts, no self can be found. (laughs) I teach often with Wes Nisker, and he he always makes the comment that he he can't believe that people weren't, you know, storming the streets with this news (laughs) that there is no self. What is found instead are complex, dynamic, processes, what the Buddha called causes and conditions which are continually unfolding, what appears as an entity, as a self, is actually an ongoing process of thinking, feeling, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, sensing. That's what we are made of. And so the word that has come to be used is a verb, selfing. Selfing is used to describe how we create ourselves, how we create a sense of self. We do it and then we can say, that's me. That's who I am. And we have a really great opportunity here on retreat to see this process in action. Let's say today we were thinking about our meditation practice. We're struggling with pain. And we think, God, this pain just won't go away, so I I must be doing it wrong. Or we begin to feel victimized by our pain. And the fear arises that we'll never have any other kind of experience, and this will be our life. We'll just be in pain the whole time. We'll never find peace. 
And who are we kidding to think that we could meditate or even begin to feel like a spiritual person? We might as well go home right now. So this is selfing in action. This is what we do. We run these scenarios and we say, oh yeah, that's me. The story we tell ourselves from the moment we awaken until we go to sleep. So now I'd like to invite you to do a little exercise. If you would just close your eyes, you don't need to adjust your sitting unless you choose to. So reflect back on today. You woke up this morning, you went to the sitting or not, you went to breakfast, you did your yogi job, you sat, you walked, you went to your interview group, you had lunch did yoga, did prajnaparamita. What kind of self did you create today? What were the thoughts and feelings and beliefs about yourself which captivated your attention, which you subscribed to and said, yes, that's me. What story about yourself did you believe? Can you see it as a story? Can you see it as something you participated in creating? Who would you be without your story? Now you can open your eyes. <clears throat> One time many years ago, I was at Insight Meditation in Massachusetts and doing a long retreat, and Joseph Goldstein's teacher, an Indian man named Munindra, was teaching one night. And he was talking about this idea of no self, and he said something I've never forgotten. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. And it really struck me. Oh, that's not actually my mother. That's my idea about my mother. And not only that, but any thought I could come up with about my mother would not be a description of the fullness of her reality, of her being. It would be a limited description. 
So I'd like to ask you to hold this thought, to say to yourself, the thought of myself is not myself. How does that feel? How does that feel, anybody? A relief. Good news. Anybody notice resistance? Yeah. Like, what do you mean the thought of myself is not myself? That is myself. Of course it's myself. We can go both ways, huh? I'd go with the relief if I were you. Even if it's like a wonderful thought of yourself, it's still very limited. It's just a thought. It's not reality. And so this exploration of identity in the Buddhist tradition, in the way that we look directly at our experience, this exploration takes us into a non-conceptual world. When we do prajnaparamita, what do we begin with? Ineffable, indescribable. Ineffable, indescribable. That doesn't just apply to prajnaparamita. It applies to you. It is your nature. Ineffable, indescribable. Yes? Ineffable. I have no idea. <laughs> Here, here's an answer. Huh? Cannot be touched. I will bring you the definition tomorrow morning. But it, I know it has that. It's like. It's, it's like that. It's like this. that feeling of just can't but I will bring you the true definition tomorrow morning but I know that it is something to do with how it cannot be caught or what did you say? touched our minds can't touch it that is our nature we are ineffable indescribable Every human is. So the looking at our identity in this direct way takes us beyond our concepts. Buddhist scholar Andy Olinsky says, beyond and behind our ideas about ourselves, our verbal snapshots, he calls them, is a vast and unnameable process. Self is a process. Self is a verb. Self is an appearance out of the ground of being. So these are some of the ways we train our minds and hearts in seeing the three characteristics. Seeing impermanence, seeing the suffering of holding on, seeing the emptiness 
of what we call self. In our practice, we also, when we begin to open to this reality, we also are unavoidably shown how in our lives we have tried to deny these facts. We, We have tried in times in our lives to say, we can, I can make it like I want it to be. I can get what I want. I can rely on things being solid and stable. I can do this. And we try hard to make it so. Until it all falls apart. And we feel surprised, disappointed, upset, betrayed, shame. What's wrong with me? I remember years ago, you know, having grown up white middle class, told the story of the white picket fence and and happily ever after, and how the it was supposed to look, you know, <laughs> such a fairy tale. I could hardly believe that I ever believed it, but um, that that tale that we were raised on, maybe you know, uh, I I thought it was my fault that it didn't happen like that. Nobody told me that things change. I thought I had to get it like that and keep it and make it work. (laughs) It's just impossible. So Rumi, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. <laughs> There's a, something else I'd like to share with you written by a, um, the second Native American ever to win an Olympic gold medal. Um, in 1962 or three, his name was Billy Mills, and his success was bittersweet because there was a lot of racism directed at him, even for winning. So he wrote this later in life. He says, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each moment. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. 
I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. He received the teaching. Impermanence, emptiness are teachings. They're not insults. They're not comments on our incapacity or our lack of something. Impermanence is an ongoing teaching. Now I am almost 70 years old. I am still in disbelief. (laughs) Somehow I didn't think it was going to happen to me. Years ago, Stephen Levine, who did the teachings on on, uh, death and dying, he tells a story of standing in in an auditorium somewhere where he was teaching a workshop and looking out over a large crowd of people, some hundreds of people, and he said, how many of you are going to die? (laughs) And he said it took a really long time (laughs) for people to raise their hands. We just don't believe it, do we? This is, this is, This is our blindness. This is why we need to reflect on the fact of impermanence over and over again. We can't hear it too much. The Buddha said, birth will end in death. Youth will end in old age. Meetings will end in separation. Wealth will end in loss. All things that exist in cyclic existence are impermanent, are transient. We try to deny the truth of change. We also try to deny the truth of emptiness, anatta. Deborah said this morning, ego is tension. I like that. And I'd like to add to that definition by also saying ego is also, in the way that we experience it directly, a sense of deficiency, of not enoughness. We are tense and we are deficient. We we feel that, don't we? Not being enough, not doing enough, not having enough. The ego says, Something is missing here. That what is here and now is not enough. It's not what I need. It's not sufficient. I need something else other than what is here. This is the story that ego tells. The Zen teacher Sherry Huber says, Egocentricity is looking at what is and seeing it as inadequate. My identity is maintained by the struggle of wanting something other than what is. Wanting something other than what is. And so we can see in this how wanting and the, and the selfing process go hand in hand. We tell ourselves the story of deficiency 
we believe it to be true, and so quite naturally we look, we want, we long for something that will make us feel whole and complete, make us feel real. We want to feel real, that we exist, that we matter. So what will assuage this, the sense of deficiency? And our culture tells us, family, children, love, success, money, fame. Or we might find in ourselves, you know, okay, I, I feel less deficient when I'm when I have strong opinions and I know I'm right. Or maybe when I'm winning something or shopping. I'm a good shopper. I exist. I matter. David Loy, the Buddhist writer, talks about this. Consumerism, consumerism, requires and develops a sense of our own impoverishment. By manipulating the gnawing sense of lack that haunts your insecure self, the media insinuates its basic message deep into our awareness. The solution to any discomfort we might have is consumption. Needless to say, that solution is incompatible with the liberative path of Buddhism. As you have perhaps tasted in doing the Prajnaparamita practice, the sense of wholeness, of completion, that fullness of being can only be found through repeated contact with the truth of our being the truth of our being. That is the only thing that will assuage that sense of deficiency. This is what nature of mind teachings offer us. Remember Siltram talked about the, uh, what did she call it, the pride, confidence, the self-esteem that grows as we gain confidence in the ground of being as being what holds us, what is our nature, that sense of confidence, of esteem that's not oriented towards the ego, but towards our being, our entire being. So in our practice we see these the play of Anicca, of Anatta, and Dukkha over and over again. And each of these moments of seeing helps us to melt a little more into the ground. It helps us melt into the ground. It, in those moments of Deep seeing, help us to release our fixation, our grasping, our resistance. Each of these moments of experiencing anicca, dukkha, anatta brings us closer 
to our true nature, the truth of our existence. It is the truth which liberates. So bringing ourselves into a situation where we have an opportunity to to taste that truth, to feel the truth of our direct experience is one which will bring us closer and closer to our true ground of being. It is direct contact with the truth that takes us home. So I think I'll close with um, I skipped a page. Oh well. Oh well, we didn't need that. I think I'll close with uh, I'll close with a poem by Hafiz. I have learned so much from truth that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, or even pure soul. The truth has befriended Hafiz so completely, it has freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. So let's sit together for a moment. May all beings everywhere see deeply into their true nature. Lovely being with you tonight. Thank you for your kind attention. So we'll sit together.